It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of violence against women, rape, and murder. The Denny's restaurant doesn't look like much, stuck amidst the endless stretch of strip malls on the north side of Indianapolis. When we visited in the middle of a sunny afternoon this October, we found it tucked in a row of fast food joints. Wendy's, Burger King, McDonald's. A steady stream of traffic rushed by the eateries on East 82nd Street. But there were far fewer cars around in the early morning hours of April 1st, 1979. Back over 40 years ago, a woman we'll call Liz had been having a great evening. She ran into an old friend at a party, and then the two of them went to this Denny's to continue the process of reconnecting. The hours passed as they chatted together in a booth, and around 3 a.m., the two decided that it was time to go their separate ways. 
When Liz walked to her car and drove off, this road looked dark and empty. It did not take her long to realize someone was following her in a green Camaro. The men trailing her, Donald Forrester and his cousin Dale Dawson, had just been ordered out of the parking lot of a nearby bar for harassing women. Now they had their eyes on Liz. What she did not know, what she could not possibly know, was that Forrester would later confess to being one of the Burger Chef killers, and he would spend the rest of his life in prison for what he was about to do to her. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And we're the Murder Sheet. We'll be taking a multi-part look into the Burger Chef murders. We'll be presenting you with a new theory about what happened each week as part of our mini-series, You Never Can Forget. On a weekly basis, you're going to hear from figures you've never heard from before. You're going to hear about facts you've never heard before. And hopefully you'll walk away with a better understanding of the sheer complexity of this awful crime. We don't just rely on what we've been told or what we've read. We've worked this case ourselves. We decided to do this podcast so we can tell you what we've learned and even clear up a few misconceptions. In this mini-series, we will give you the top theories about the crime. After we finish covering the Burger Chef case, the murder sheet will continue to investigate different restaurant-related homicides for the rest of Season 1. We're the Murder Sheet, and this is You Never Can Forget, The Tank. Donald Forrester was just the sort of man you would expect to commit the Burger Chef murders. He grew up on the south side of Indianapolis, not terribly far from the murder site. He knew the area very well. In fact, in 1969, he molested a girl about a mile from where the bodies of the Burger Chef victims would later be discovered. He also had connections to the Speedway area. His cousin, Dale Dawson, lived at a hotel it was in the shopping center across the street from the Burger Chef, and Dale also worked in the McDonald's just down the road. Forrester committed robberies. He even robbed at least one Burger Chef restaurant. 
He was violent. The people who knew him best were terrified of him. He liked to rape women. After pleading guilty to assaulting his own sister, he was sent to prison for five years. He was released in October 1978, about a month before the Burgerschaft murders. In the earliest days of the investigation, someone even called the line police set up to receive tips about the murders and gave them Forrester's name. But he wasn't taken especially seriously as a suspect until after he stalked Liz on that spring morning in 1979. Last October, we spoke to Tom Davidson, who investigated Liz's case for the Indiana State Police. He arrived to the meeting with a sharp memory and a printed-out copy of the memoir he wrote for his grandkids, detailing his time as a state trooper. We were struck by the immense empathy he still has for Liz and the other victims of violent crimes that he's worked on. Our interview took place in a busy Panera Bread on the west side of Indianapolis, so please pardon the sound quality. As Liz drove home through the darkness and became increasingly convinced she was being followed, she made a choice. And she decided, I'm not going to go home. Because if I do that, I don't know where I live. There was a stoplight, and she deliberately ran the stoplight to see whether or not she was being followed. They ran the stoplight. Now she knew they were definitely following her. She found a street in a residential area, and she pulled over, figuring the car behind her would just drive right on by. But they did not. There was a car in front of her, and they trapped her in. And Forrester got out and walked up. She rolled the window down a little bit. What was the name of that serial killer that uh, they made a movie about? Ted Bundy? Bundy. Forrester was like Bundy. He could tell a story. So he tells her, you know me, don't you? And she goes, I've never seen you before. Forrester pulls out his driver's license and shows it to her. Would Forrester, who was still on parole, have shown her his identification if he expected her to survive this night and get a chance to give his name to police? He pulls a gun, sets it through, she's got about this much of the window down, and sticks it through there and tells her to get out or he's going to kill her. So she gets out. He led her back to the car. They were driving a Camaro. It turns out it was green with beige uh, interior. Forrester gave his cousin an order. He tells his cousin to drive to the country. While his cousin is driving, Forrester rapes her. Neither Forrester nor his cousin were familiar with the area. They get lost, and she's naked in the backseat with Forrester. Forrester told his cousin to drive to a field. Liz realized what this meant. She knew that she was going to be murdered. So she's in the backseat of a Camaro, which is a two-door. And this is unbelievable. A cat or a rabbit runs out in front of the car. Forrester's cousin slams on the brakes to keep from killing this mm-hmm. animal when they're getting ready to take this mm-hmm. woman out and kill her. Well, when they do that, she reaches out and opens the uh, passenger door. She's stark naked. Liz leapt out of the car and took off running into the darkness. But Forrester and his cousin followed. Well, they circle back and and they search for her, and she's hiding in the bushes. Finally, Forrester and his cousin gave up and drove off. Liz felt she was safe at last. 
All she needed to do was get someone to help her. She goes up to the house and knocks on the door and please call the police. And the woman comes to the door and sees her. She says, there's nothing I can do for you. Close the door. She went to another house. They would not let her in, but they did call the police for her. When the Anderson cops arrived, they took her to the hospital and they listened to her story. But they had doubts. How, they wondered, could she have escaped from the back of a Camaro when those cars only had two doors? In 2020, many rape survivors struggled to have their stories heard and believed by those tasked with investigating crimes. 1979 was even worse in that regard. This was a time in America when the question of whether or not husbands could legally rape their wives was still being hotly debated in the national media and across the pages of the Indianapolis Star and the Indianapolis News. Forrester, meanwhile, took his cousin Dale Dawson back to his room at the American Inn, which, as we mentioned, happened to be just across the street from the Burger Chef. Dawson took Liz's clothes and stuffed them into a dumpster at the hotel. Later that morning, Forrester's wife saw him washing out the interior of the Camaro with a garden hose. He was covering his tracks and probably thought he was safe. He didn't realize that, unlike the Anderson police, state trooper Tom Davidson took Liz's story seriously and that he and his partner, Tom Jarvis, were coming for him. The first thing Davidson and Jarvis did was locate Liz's car which was still parked on the residential street where she had been snatched. There, they found that they had caught a break. A lot of times when it's rain and and mud, it it will will pool against the the curb. Mm -hmm. I got Forrester's tire tracks. Then Davidson got another idea. I said, let's see if we can do a sketch. And so we did a sketch. So I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. So we're going to go to every business that was open that night and pass these around. The strategy worked. Within days, Davidson and Jarvis got a call from the manager of a bar. Two men matching the sketches were there. The troopers rushed over. Immediately, they spotted something familiar in the parking lot. And there's the car, exactly as she had described it. And I went over to the right side of the car, and I compared the tire prints to the photographs that I had, and they matched. The next step was clear. So I said, Tom, of course, we're both in plain clothes. Let's go in and confront him. Davidson headed straight for Forrester, and Jarvis went to the cousin, Dale Dawson. Tom asked their guy, like, poor guy. He's not 21 years old, and he's standing there with a beer in his hand. So Tom places him under arrest. When he was asked who helped him get the alcohol, Dawson pointed to Forrester. So they arrested him for contributing to the delinquency of a minor. So we cuff him, take him out, and we put him in different cars. Tom Jarvis had a blunt message for Dale Dawson. You're going to prison, and you know what they do with sex offenders in prison? You're going to get pumped. But Dawson was more afraid of his own cousin. Whatever you do, don't put me in a, in a cell. Because he was convinced that he would kill him. 
Davidson showed Dawson the photographs he had taken of the tire tracks at the crime scene and pointed out that they matched the tracks on the cart that Dawson and Forrester were using. And when, when he saw that I had the photographs of their tires, he came. And you know, he, he confessed, took us to where the gun was that they'd used. Davidson got another surprise about Forrester. I find out he's married. So I go down to talk to his wife. And she just, she's totally mortified. She has no idea of his background. And she told me, that she said, well, Forrester told her that he was on probation. It's not true, he was on parole, and that's a big difference. Because he was in a car that was used for a burglar. And I, I said, Mrs. Forrester, he raped his niece. That's why he was on parole. Well, then, she just told everything. She shared one bizarre anecdote, which suggested a possible tie to another case. The Burger Chef connection mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. was, she said, we were down in Johnson County, driving around, mm-hmm. and we came to a bridge. This location was close by the murder site in the Burger Chef case. If you recall from our first episode, victims Danny Davis and Ruth Shelton had been shot with a thirty-eight caliber weapon. And he said, let's stop here and go down. There was a crypt there. And then he started looking around, and he found some twenty twos. Forrester gathered the shells for what he called a remembrance, but when he got to the home he shared with his wife, he flushed them down the toilet. This seemed, at the very least, to be suspicious. But the focus of law enforcement was squarely on convicting Forrester on the rape, and not so much attention was paid to this detail at the time. Forrester did not make a good impression on Wilmer Gehring, his court-appointed attorney. Donald Ray was a very unpleasant person to be around. You know, I guess one of the things uh, that came out in the course of my representation is that he was uh, really uh, very much of a, a racist. And How did you come out that he was a racist? Oh, just uh, he, he expressed it many times, many times <laughs> in many different ways. Representing Forrester caused an unexpected risk for Gehring. One of the things that happened while, just before the trial started uh, got a call at home, which my wife answered, and uh, said that uh, you know if Donald Ray was not acquitted, then uh, you know, I would be next. Uh, so it was threatening my life uh, as his defense attorney, which is a little unusual. I've had plenty of uh, people threaten me as a prosecutor, but not as a defense attorney. So what I did with that is I went to the judge and the prosecutor and, and they arranged for additional courtroom security and um, at one point they had a signal worked out during the trial one of the undercover detectives was sitting in the courtroom saw uh, Don, uh, another relative of Donald Ray's I think another cousin sitting in the courtroom uh, and he had a gun on in an ankle holster so the judge uh, called a recess and the officers uh checked people as they left the courtroom, but by then he had passed the gun off to uh, somebody else, probably a female who had a purse, and they didn't find it, didn't find the gun, but they did see the gun in the courtroom. Gehring had taken on a tough job in a number of respects. Davidson and Jarvis had collected more than enough evidence 
to create a strong case against Forrester. But there was still the possibility that he'd walk. In an Indianapolis Star article from December 5, 1978, Deputy Prosecutor Ann Delaney noted that she wished local juries would enter the 20th century when it came to attitudes about rape. She noted that to get a conviction on a rape case, she felt she needed a victim who was both lily white and a virgin to convince older male jurors. Despite her ordeal and ongoing harassment from Forrester's male relatives, Liz testified against Forrester at his trial. She impressed Gehring. She was obviously very traumatized, but she did a good job on the witness stand during the trial. I mean, she did a decent job on her deposition, too, obviously. But uh, I thought she, yeah, she was completely believable. There was no, there was no question in terms of identity. And I don't think there's any question as to what would have happened to her if she hadn't jumped out. That you believe he would have killed her? Yeah, he would have killed her, yeah. And she was convinced of that, and I had no reason to doubt that at all. The jury ended up believing Liz as well. Forrester was convicted and sentenced to 95 years. We believe that when Liz jumped out of the Camaro, she didn't just save her own life. She helped put away a predator who stalked and targeted women, strangers and kin alike, and who seemed to be escalating in terms of violence. She is a hero. After the trial, Forrester was locked in his cell at Pendleton Reformatory, but he was not destined to be forgotten. Let's take a quick break from the murder sheet presents, You Never Can Forget, to tell you about a podcast investigating yet another unforgettable crime. The Orange Tree is a seven-part series about a 2005 homicide that happened near the University of Texas at Austin. The murder of 21-year-old Jennifer Cave, who was shot, dismembered, and left in a bathtub at her friend Colton Petoniak's apartment, continues to haunt the area to this day. Like the Burger Chef murders, this case features plenty of twists and turns, including Colton's flight to Mexico with another UT student, Laura Hall. Both were later convicted in connection with the crime, although Colton has continued to appeal his verdict and claim innocence. The business student turned convicted murderer now says that he doesn't even remember much about the night Jennifer died. The Orange Tree is reported on and produced by Haley Butler and Tanu Thomas, who were both seniors at the University of Texas when they started this project. Together, Haley and Tanu strive to piece together this tragic story in an in-depth podcast that features audio from courtroom scenes and interrogation rooms, prison phone calls, and exclusive interviews with both the perpetrators and the victim's family. You can binge all seven episodes of The Orange Tree today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin. 
or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Row Body Program. Here's how it works. Row gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Row Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. EMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's roe.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, back to the murder sheet. Forrester wasn't a model prisoner in the years after his conviction. He was confined to solitary after refusing to testify for the state in a murder trial. He carved a shiv from a toothbrush. In 1983, he pretended to be ill in order to snag a trip to the hospital in a prison van. Upon arriving, Forrester and two other prisoners picked the locks on their shackles, overpowered the guard, and fled. After a warning shot, the van driver managed to shoot and kill one of the escapees with a rifle. It wasn't Forrester. He'd nearly made it to the edge of the White River before he was recaptured. That night, Davidson called up the prison superintendent to let him know that his men had killed the wrong guy. It wasn't until a few years after that that Mel Wilsey of the Marion County Sheriff's Department first heard of Forrester. Remember that the Marion County Sheriff's Department has jurisdiction in the Burger Chef case because Speedway is located in Marion County. So, um, and you get to know people, and he is to know, as an investigator, you know, snitches and confidential informants, and, you know, you get all of that, and then uh, somebody came to me and said, hey, this guy is, uh, is talking about birth shift, and um, he, he may need, he may have something for you, but I don't know if he'll talk to you. And that was for sure. Pendleton was about a 40-minute trip from Wilsey's home base in Indianapolis. He decided it was worth the drive. Another detective I went to Pendleton, Indiana. And went in and tried to see him, and he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't talk to us. Okay. Uh, we went back. He finally started talking to us a little bit. But he's an inmate. Mm. Bits and pieces. Stringing along and so on and so forth. But through some of the conversations, 
we were trying to think, is he just telling us stuff that he's read? It is a problem police often have with informants, especially in an age where stories detailing crimes appear on television and in the newspapers. A smart con can take what he encounters in the press and spin a convincing tale around it in order to manipulate the system. Or he may be honestly trying to share the truth as he knows it. The only way to figure it all out is to listen and to always be on the lookout for supporting evidence. So uh, he finally agreed to talk to us, but he wouldn't talk to us while he was an inmate at Pilm. So uh, we got court and brought him back to our jail here. During the trip, Wilsey decided to take a chance and see if he could get something from Forrester that would support his claims. When we had him in the car and brought him back from Pilton, which is northeast here, probably an hour, uh, we're talking and so on and so forth. And um, he said, if, you're, you know, if you want to cooperate, then I need you to show me where mm-hmm. uh, these, these kids were murdered. And uh, he took us right to the spot, took us up into the woods and showed us where the bodies were. And, you know, he wouldn't have known that. Unless, of course, he was there that night. Wilsey began to wonder if Forrester was more than just a man with knowledge, more than a witness. Maybe he was an actual participant in the murders. Meanwhile, he pressed Forrester to reveal what he knew about why the crime even happened. And he had said earlier that the reason for the murdership was the fact that Jane Freed's brother, Jimmy, yes, owed him a bunch of money and that uh, they were went over there just to rough him up. And to get, to get Jimmy's attention, he, of course, he wasn't there, but it was his sister. And hoping that she would say something to him. They worked Forrester hard, trying to get him to explain all the lingering mysteries in the case. Uh, we took several statements from him. Uh, we took him with us several more times to different locations and Speedway and back to the where the restaurant was, and mm-hmm. he showed us where they parked the manager's car, Jenny Breed's car, and he said that they parked it there just to play mind games with the Speedway Police Department. As time passed, Wilsey became convinced he had the guilty man. It just seemed like Forrest was the right guy. He, he knew a lot of things that, and we researched this, he knew a lot of things that weren't public. But the problem was that basically all Forrester had given them was a story and a few names. If the case was to move forward, they would need some hard evidence. Wilsey's first move was to try to get some incriminating evidence on the man Forrester identified as the one most responsible for the crime. This individual, according to Forrester, was a major drug dealer in the area. It was this person to whom Jane allegedly owed the debt that cost her her life. But the man worked in a factory, and police couldn't even find proof that he sold drugs at all. Uh, yeah, I couldn't get anything on him. Right. Except what, what, what Forrester was telling us. We did a lot of background on him and following him. I mean, we did so many things with him, we couldn't. Right. Couldn't uh, sit on the house. Follow him from his job, follow him to his job. We never found anything that, and I don't think he knew that we were, were, were watching If he didn't know he was being watched, then it seemed unlikely he was modifying his behavior to seem less suspicious. 
but one peculiar incident stuck in Wilsey's mind. What was obvious, uh, we, we, uh, we called him in one day. Right. And then um, he came in, mm-hmm. and we told him what we were looking into, and we told him that the information, some of the information we had heard. And he didn't really say a whole lot. And he said, I'd like to have an attorney. Mm-hmm. Not a problem. Um, I think we made the appointment for the next day or two or three days later. And he showed up with uh, Jim Boyles. And Boyles is probably one of the highest paid attorneys. So it just seemed odd that here's a guy who works as a factory worker mm-hmm. and not involved in anything. And you pull him in, and the next time you see him, he's with the, one of the highest paid lawyers in, in Indianapolis. While that episode may have seemed unusual, it certainly did not constitute evidence that what Forrester was telling them about the man was true. Wilsey needed something more. And then he got a break. Forrester at one point mentioned that he was present when the victims were killed, and that afterwards he casually tossed the spent shells into a nearby creek. This rang a bell in someone's mind reminding them of the odd anecdote Mrs. Forrester told Tom Davidson about how her husband had gathered spent shells at a creek near the crime scene, brought them home, and promptly flushed them down the toilet. Someone did some checking. The house the Forresters lived in at the time was not hooked up to a sewer, but rather to a septic tank. It was therefore possible that, even after all this time, the shells could still be there. It was the middle of the summer and scorchingly hot, but the investigators did not hesitate. They got a warrant, went out to the old Forester place, and started digging. Together with Don Lindsay of the state police, Wilsey sifted through the raw sewage, rainwater, and excrement, searching for a shell casing. It was a wretched, foul-smelling twist on the old idiom of searching for a needle in a haystack. After a while, it seemed if there was evidence to be found supporting Forrester's bona fides, it would just have to be discovered elsewhere. Then, someone plucked a small, hard cylinder from the stench. Then another. And another. Three shell casings. Next week, on the murder sheet, we take an in-depth look at Forrester's story. Also, tensions rise between the state police and the Marion County Sheriff's Department. Uh, Superintendent of the state police called me and said, hey, I know you're not day-to-day on this, but can you go? There was some friction between Don and these investigators. And uh, he said, could you go over there and kind of smooth this out, make sure it doesn't get out of hand? Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet Presents, You Never Can Forget. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast or by searching Murder Sheet. For exclusive content like bonus episodes and case files, become a patron of The Murder Sheet on Patreon at patreon.com slash murder sheet. If you enjoyed listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. 
and send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Before you go, please stick around to hear from our friend Nina from the Already Gone podcast, a great show you should definitely be checking out. I first learned about the Burger Chef murders from her 2016 episode on the case. Murder, missing persons, unsolved mysteries. Already Gone explores lesser-known cases from Michigan and the Great Lakes region. I'm Nina Instead, the voice behind the Already Gone podcast. Join me for an in-depth look at stories that will have you looking over your shoulder and locking the doors at night. Find Already Gone on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.